We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Have you heard the quote, a mother is only as happy as her least happy child? There's something about the link between parents and children that goes to the very heart of what makes life meaningful. And that's a blessing, and it's also a curse as well. I used to think it gets easier as your children get older, but I wonder if that's true. When children are small, the tears are easier to wipe away. Even though they fall hard as teenagers, they seem to recover quicker. But what about adult children? What if you don't like your son or daughter's new partner or bride or groom? What if your adult children rarely get in touch? or have fallen out with each other and trying to pull you into resolving the disputes? How do you help with their mental health problems? And how do you react if they point the finger at you? My witness is Celia Dodd, who's an author and journalist who writes about family. Her latest book is called All Grown Up, Nurturing Parents with Adult Children. She's a mother of two sons and a daughter, all over 30, and a grandmother to four under three. So what do you think of that quote, a mother is only as happy as her least happy child? Is it truer as your children become adults? Yes, I think it is, actually. I I think there's a strong nugget of truth in that, although obviously things get much more complicated when they become adults, I think. And you, as a parent, are trying to live your own independent life. I've heard Another really good saying, which almost conflicts with that, which is the best gift you can give your child is to be happy yourself. And so I think both adult and child are striving for independence. And that makes things complicated because you are still a parent. They are still on some level a little toddler who used to really miss you when you went to work or whatever. So that's why it, it's compl- complicated. But I, I, I really do think it's true that as a parent, you've always got your sort of sixth sense out there for your child's state of happiness or unhappiness. And if they're unhappy, it still makes you unhappy. It's, it's visceral. It's sort of in there, it's kind of instinctive almost. So yes, I, you know, I, I'm basically, I, I just think it gets more complicated and harder. <laughs> So actually writing this book, did it make you think about what kind of child you were to your parents? Yes, and that was quite painful, actually, because I think all the time about my relationship with my mother when she was my age now and how I took her for granted, I took her good humour for granted, and how sort of I just really didn't take her feelings on board. You know, I just expected her to carry on loving me, I think, you know, which she happily did. <laughs> Fortunately, I was very lucky uh, with my mum. But yeah, I, and I think that's quite a good lesson because it makes me realise that I can't expect my children to be 
you know, that considerate. It, it informs what I expect of my children, I think. Looking back, really putting myself back to, to what it was like to, you know, when I was in my 30s or in my 20s, when I just sort of went off and had my own independent life. And I think, actually, to be honest, that's the way it should be. I think you, as an adult child, you should be able to just go off and really not give your parents that much mind. <laughs> so if they were here today, what would be the apology that you would give to your parents? I'm sorry I didn't take your feelings into consideration more. I'm sorry I didn't pay you more attention. And yeah, I'm sorry I didn't talk to you more about what it was like for you when you were an adult child with your mother, because I really know very little about that. You know, those kind of things weren't really talked about, except, you know, the kind of the family tropes that, you know, grandma was a bit of a dragon kind of thing. So, yes, I would say that. My father died when I was a young adult, so, um, you know, 29. So basically he was severely depressed. So that's a completely different, you know, it's very hard. There are many questions, obviously, I'd like to ask him, but that's, you know, that's kind of different. And are you? do you think that our relationship with our children has actually changed so that your relationship with your children mm. is different from the, children, the relationship you had with your parents? That there's sort of much more a sense of trying to be friends. I mean, yeah. give or take a few years, we're basically the same generation. And the idea for us that you'd be friends with your parents is... Mm. was sort of patently ridiculous. Um, yeah. There was a huge generation gap. My parents were pre-rock and roll, you know, so mm. uh, all of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and David Bowie was turn that beep, beep, beep noise down, whereas mm. generations now share music. So do you think there has been a big shift? Yes, I think there has been a really big shift. But I think, you know, we were basically trying to reject a lot of our parents' values and that generation's values, particularly, you know, I was a teenager in the 60s. So it was all about rebelling and thinking it was all their values were a load of nonsense. I think there's more tolerance from the young generation of our values now. But I think it's a mistake to think that we're friends. I think there are too many layers to the relationship. A lot of people say, you know, my daughter's my best friend or even, my, you know, my mother's my best friend. And I, you know, I, I, there's an element of envy in me for that, but I, I kind of don't completely buy it because I do think there are so many layers, you know. I remember my, you know, so many layers with my son, where, you know, as a stroppy teenager, a kind of specky nine-year-old, all of those things are, are part of the relationship. And so, A, it's much longer lasting than many friendships. But also it's much, it's got so much history of different varieties. So yeah, I really think relationships have changed and I between the generations. And I think an awful lot of that is economics. It's now considered that adulthood ends at 29. You don't, you know, you don't become a full adult until you're 29. And that's to do with economics, but it's also to do with a kind of, I think, a willingness on the younger generation's part to accept support and to be more interdependent. I think the interdependence is a really good thing and a really, it's a progress. Uh, You know, I don't think it was necessarily great the way we left our parents. Well, the great advantage was there were clear boundaries. Yes. I mean, I remember going off to university and I was having problems with accommodation 
And mm. um, my parents offered to write a, an official sounding letter to the accommodation people to sort of put a rocket under their mm. backsides, which I think it was something that parents would do today as well. Mm. But they got a very sharp letter back saying, we consider our students to be adults and basically mm. piss off. And, you know, it was quite a shock. And, you know, I suddenly realised, yes, I am an adult. I can't go running to my parents. It was a clear boundary. And I actually sorted all of that stuff out for myself. And I was better for doing it. I think that those boundaries are far far more difficult. Where do you become a, an adult? And I'm sorry, I want to rebel against the idea that I wasn't an adult until I was 29. I mean, yeah. please. No, absolutely. And I think most young adults now now would say that. But I think it means it's a much more gradual process, basically, that we now accept. You don't sort of, on your 21st birthday or your 18th birthday, you don't suddenly become an adult. It's a process that begins when you're 14 and sort of probably carries on for the rest of your life, never mind 29. And I wouldn't suggest that uh, an awful lot of people in their 20s are very capable of sorting themselves out. I mean, they do. Look, they, they are incredibly resilient. They have all sorts of, you know, they're, they're just as good as we were at sorting this stuff out. They're certainly not snowflakes. I don't like that idea at all. But what I do think is that it's all become a bit more nuanced and that this idea that we are dependent on each other. Parents are dependent on their children. Children are dependent on their parents in good ways, not not necessarily bad ways. And so that it's not infantilization. It's more actually an acceptance of a continuing relationship, which is kind of gradually transforming into something different, that it's not just one thing one day and one thing the next. Okay. Well, I, I'm perfectly happy to believe we're not going to change overnight. But how do you negotiate those boundaries? How do you find out exactly where they are? Well, I think it's extremely difficult. And I think for parents whose natural instinct is to come up with solutions or to, you know, sort things out, I think they just have to back off. I mean, I think it's really important that parents allow their children to make their own mistakes. And I think there is a tendency now you know, to sort things out for their kids. And some people, you know, some people are more keen to find solutions than others. It's their natural kind of bend, if you like. Yes, I think we have to fight against that and work out the very fine line between being supportive, being there, a bit like a lifeguard at the edge of a swimming pool, I always think, you know, ready to jump in in an emergency, but not interfering, not being in the swimming pool, showing them how to swim, you know, but just letting them make their own mistakes. And that, let me tell you, is really, really hard. It's really difficult because if you see them making a massive blunder, you just want to stop them. But you, you have, I think really in most situations you have to back off. I love the quote from the Queen in The Crown, doing nothing is the hardest thing of all. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Doing nothing, it really is hard. And really it's having faith in a way that you've done a good job, that you've given them a sort of emotional toolbox, if you like, because they're going to come across all kinds of croppers, that all kinds of bad stuff happens in life. And what you really hope is that you've given them what they need to cope with that, but also that you are ready to help and they're willing to come and ask you for help. I think that's quite important too. Not all the time, but just when they really need it, you know. 
So look out for the phrase, I'm not a child, mum. That really is a sort of, you, you've crossed the boundary at that point, haven't you? Seriously. And you hear that all the time. I mean, you know, I heard on a, a BBC drama the other day, you know, with a 45-year-old woman saying to her mum, you know, I'm not a child, mum. You know, there's all of these things. And there's all of these things like, you know, I found myself ruffling my son's hair the other day. And he Oops. said, and I, I didn't even know I was doing it. It was completely unconscious. So, you know, there's all these kind of things. And then there's that thing of saying, you know, oh, I've made your favourite, you know, gazpacho, whatever it happens to be. And the child says, what? You know, it's not, I really don't you know. What, what are you talking about? It's just load of that nonsense. was my favourite in 1989. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So all of those kind of labels. Yes, you've got to be careful about putting your child in a box, sort of thinking, you know, he's the clumsy one. He's the one that couldn't pour out a glass of orange juice without spilling it all over the floor. You've got to realise, look at the evidence now, what they're like. Look at how other people see them. So how do you deal with the crisis you don't hear about? Well, mm, very difficult, because as I say, I do think you have a sixth sense when something's wrong. And I mean, a lot of parents would sort of try and find out about it. You know, if you if you know that something's not quite right, they would kind of try and find out from siblings, perhaps, a sibling or... But I think it's much better to be direct and to find a way. My mother used to speak to my partner. It just drove me completely and utterly up the wall. Well, I think, yes. And I think that it, it is much better to be direct. But I've heard parents talk about eggshelling and... You know, you really do feel you're treading on eggshells with your children a lot of the time. You don't want to upset them. You don't want them to go off in a half. You don't want to make it worse, actually. That's really what you don't want to do. You don't want to sort of bring a painful subject thing that's going through. But so I think maybe there are all kinds of ways to be subtly supportive, you know, just keeping in touch in an unobtrusive way. Certainly not firing forensic questions and that kind of thing. But I think just keeping the communication open and going for, a, you know, things like going for a walk, I think is really helpful so that, you know, you're not sitting across the table, you're, you can open up communication really well in that way. And the telephone is probably not the place because when you call, you sort of don't know what's going on, do you? Whereas if you're actually there for the weekend or there with you for the weekend, then you can much better get the temperature. Yes, there are opportunities. But I think then that, that, you know, if you are there for the weekend, something I've discovered from my experience is don't leave the difficult subject until the final, you know, afternoon, because then you end up having a terrible, you know, traumatic conversation and you go home in tears. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, there's little opportunity to resolve it because, as you say, on the phone is, is not the place. You can't somehow tell somebody else's mood very well on the phone or indeed in, you know, text or whatever. And it sort of works both ways because I think that um, parents have to guard the barriers with their children too. You know, I have lots of clients whose children, given half the chance, try and come in and try and sort them out. So. It works both ways. You need privacy too. You know, the message that I often give is to tell your adult children, you know, thank you very much, but, you know, I have a therapist. I'm dealing with this myself. I'm really pleased to have your support, but, you know, 
you don't need to have my back on it. Mm. No, I totally agree. I think it, it, there's a woman in my book who said, you know, she supported her, her mother was having a very difficult fallout with her sister. The mum and her sister had a massive row, mm. which really devastated the mum. And the daughter, who had been very supported by her mother in the past, sort of stepped in to support her mum. But she said, mm, but perhaps I was being a bit bossy, you know, perhaps I was being over prescriptive and my mum would really rather I shut up. So I think, yeah, I think kids have to be sensitive and I think they learn how to be sensitive. And, and it's fine to tell them, as you say, you know, well, well, actually, it's fine, but I don't need your support. I mean, it can get very tricky, you know, if, if your marriage is in difficulty or whatever and your, ki- your kids are aware of that, you know, then it, it all gets very complicated with taking sides and all this stuff. Oh, my least favourite emails are, my parents are having a problem and I'm looking for a therapist for them. And you sort of think, mm. you know, how old are your parents? <laughs> but, you know, I have friends who are frightened of their children. Well, you know, it is frightening because the power balance has shifted from when they're younger. You know, they can vote with their feet. They don't have to see you. They don't have to have anything to do with you. Their criticism is extremely painful, just as your criticism of them is extremely painful. And it's often not direct. It's, you know, I think parents and adult children are very sensitive to each other, you know, and there are sort of these hints or oh, why is he being a bit offish? You know, there's all of this stuff that you're kind of, you can't, it's sometimes difficult to read them. And there is this fear that, you know, they might they might just not want to see you. And it's that way round, you know, the, the power balance is with the kids, I'm afraid. So, yes, so I think it, there's an element that it's right to it. It sounds terrible, you're frightened of your children, but what you're frightened of is damaging the relationship, I think, or or making it, you know, not so good. Now, what do you think about the subject of favourites? My parents always claim they had no favourites. Do you believe them? Yes, I totally believe them. I I don't have favourites, although people always joke that my middle child is my favourite. And so I just, to my kids, I just say, well, of course he is. He's the cleverest and he's nicest to me. So I, I turn it into a joke when they say that. And it's so not true. I think it's obviously really bad to have favourites. But I don't think, you, obviously you treat your children in different ways. They're different people. And the key is to treat them fairly, I think. You're going to have a different relationship with each of them. I've got a daughter. I've got to do different things with her than I do with my sons. You know, we have different things in common. We just talk about different things. So I think you have to be fair in balancing out your sort of time, your energy, how much you think about them. But I really, I myself don't have a favourite. And I don't think most parents do. I think they just have perhaps closer relationships a closer relationship with one child, but I don't think that means they're your favourite. I really it, don't. It's, in, it's interesting. When I speak to clients, it's, this is one of the most revealing questions that you can ask, you know, mm. who was the favourite in your family? And most people are more than happy to say which of their siblings was the favourite or even to own up and say it was probably me. And that sometimes is an advantage and sometimes it's a disadvantage. Mm. Um, It's not necessarily all good, but did you have siblings yourself? Yes, I was the youngest of four by a long way. So my sister's 12 years older than me. Do you think that your parents had a favourite 
if I had asked you that question, I am asking you this question, who was each of your parents' favourite child? <laughs> well, I, I could say my older brother, but I don't think that's fair. Actually, I don't think they did have favourites. And I don't think I felt any disgruntlement that, that they had favourites. I think what's interesting about what you said that, you know, that children <laughs> perceive that there's a favourite, whereas parents always deny it. Yes, I, I think perhaps my siblings might say that I was the favourite just because I was the youngest and the really annoying baby and got treated differently because I was a different generation, in, fact, in effect. So I would have to own up to that. But, you know, it's not great. Actually, somebody in my book, she does say she was the favourite. She was the youngest, not the youngest, she was the middle of six. And uh, she said it was a burden as well as a, you know, it was a real burden because, you know, she had the resentment of her five other siblings to contend with. Whether it's about favouritism or other things that, you know, looking back now, you regret, how do you repair the damage? Because often some of the issues between your children can have their roots back all the way to when they were when they were tiny. So how do you repair that damage that happened so long ago? Well, I think you keep communication open about it. I think you you allow them to express it, not in a kind of heavy way, but that you you make it possible to have that discussion, either separately or together as a family. It's it's possible to have that. You know, it, it does often arise, you know, that kind of conversation or that time when, you know, mum gave you all the whatever it was all the toys or whatever, whatever terrible thing I did. But I do think that in that discussion, I mean, I think if it's serious, obviously some kind of family therapy is really, really helpful. I mean, you do hear of that and that's often, I think, instigated by the adult child. Certainly the family therapist I spoke to for my book would say that, you know, that they'd want to have some kind of therapy with their parents to discuss that kind of thing. But I think what you hope as children get older is that they understand, they have a greater understanding that, you know, parents aren't perfect. In fact, that's the first sign of being an adult that you realise that. But that sometimes parents just don't have the bandwidth. They've got other stuff going on in their life. And to really, you know, pay attention as they should and I think it's, you know, it's hard for parents as well to recognise that. I find it, it's quite painful and it's very painful to have, you know, to have those sort of criticisms levelled at you. But I think you have to, as a parent, be prepared to do a bit of self-examination and recognise it. Because quite often it's things that you've forgotten about as a parent that a child would, will hold on to and vice versa, the things that you think as a parent, they were really terrible that you did because we all think we did bad things, but they're often the things that the child's completely forgotten about. So, yeah, I think keeping the conversation open in a non-heavy way so that you can return to it if you want to it is probably the most helpful thing that you can do. So I've got three pieces of advice to deal with it. The first thing is if they say something critical or you've asked them about why something is a problem, you know, why haven't you been speaking? The 
immediate response is to try and defend yourself. It's a very natural thing to do, but unfortunately, it just puts the barriers up. So this is what you do. You summarize what you've just heard. So, you know, I understand that um, when I told you about grandpa's death and, you know, I told you to not to make such a fuss, that that was really upsetting for you. So you summarize what you've just said, and you'll find that what will happen is that they will feel heard and they will probably add a little bit more. And you summarize that as well. And you either actually say it or with your body language, this is part two, you say, tell me more about this. You know, were there other times when this happened? So tell me more curious questions because their fear is that they're going to upset you. And, you know, it's true, but you've got, you're, you're an adult and you can listen to this stuff. And then the third thing is, and this is the most powerful thing that you can actually do, and that's apologize for it. My father once apologized for me, to me for something that uh, my parents did, and it was hmm, 15 years later. And that was one of the most powerful moments that we ever shared together. I mean, you can possibly hear a little bit of emotion in my voice. It's okay to apologize. It really does make a huge difference to your relationship. If you just defend yourself, then what you do is you say, I'm, I'm beyond criticism. I don't want to hear it. And that really puts a barrier between the, the two of you. Of course, it depends how it's, it's being presented, how, you're, how the conversation is going. Because if you do feel attacked, you're naturally likely to, to defend yourself. You know, some, some children can be quite, you know, you know, you did this sort of thing. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but actually defending yourself generally mm. makes them angrier. Mm. So, of you know, it's tough. But you mm. say, I hear you're really angry about mm. this. Mm. Mm. Just acknowledge their anger. Yeah. And I think it's also a lot of parents can get stuck in the idea that they're the parent and there's a child. And, you know, parents don't grow out of the idea that, you know, things have moved on, if you like. And so I think you're absolutely right about all of the things you said. But I think parents have to acknowledge, it can be quite hard sometimes for parents to acknowledge, to think about their part in conflict, to think, of, you know, if they've got anything to do with it, and then to say sorry. I think it's hard for parents to say sorry. And I think the other thing, which is a way of, I suppose, defending yourself without defending yourself, and it might not be in this conversation, it might be a totally different conversation, but possibly when you've reflected back on it, you know, tell them about your relationship with your own mother or your mm -hmm. own father and the stuff that you're dealing with, you know, so that you say, you know, my mother used to do this. I always vowed to myself that I would never do that too. And, mm. you know, I've done it. You know, I'm sorry for passing on the parcel, but it sort of puts it into a context because, you know, parents have parents too. Exactly. And great grandparents. I mean, my family is still dealing with stuff for my great grandparents. So, you know, be kind to yourself, but actually defending yourself is not the way forward because it just puts up boundaries. But don't you think that's an argument for having those kind of conversations 
for choosing the moment, if you like, to have those mm. conversations so that you are having them when you're calm, you're reflective, you're open and you're listening. You know, you're ready to really listen to what your child is saying and vice versa. So you're giving each other space. And I think what is really wonderful is people are actually having these conversations now. I've mm. been a therapist for 35 years and I'm struck by the generation below us, sort of the the age of your children. They are far more willing to actually say to their parents, you know, this hurt, whereas my generation would um, rather wash their mouth out with soap and water than criticise their parents. And the relationship suffers from from that. You know, my relationship with my when my parents suffered from the fact that I edited huge chunks of material out because I didn't want to upset them or worry them. And to be honest, they would have been upset and worried about everything I would have told them. You know, so there was always this great big slab of silence. Their mm-hmm. silence about their stuff and my silence about my stuff. But generally, I have to say, you know, the silence comes down the generations. So, you know, I don't blame them, but we're the only people that are alive who can actually break the silences. So I'm, I'm thinking of two other podcasts to recommend. There's one that's right back at the very beginning of the, of the series, which is about uh, uh, speaking to your mother in particular about uh, material. That'll be in the show notes. And um, on the subject of family therapy, there's a very interesting interview with Julia Samuel, who's written a book on uh, family therapy. So what about adults who need more support, sort of mental health problems, eating disorders, drugs? What do you suggest about that? Well, I think usually, I mean, well, certainly the, the parents that I spoke to, their support was needed. I mean, it was asked for and needed, I think. So obviously it makes things incredibly much more complicated because the child is going back to being a child, you know, the, and the dependent, there's much more dependence. And that's an extremely fine line, I think, to to sort of manage. And I think it's difficult for parents because they want their, to carry on their own lives, but they want to support their children. It's difficult for the children because they really don't want their parents' support necessarily, but they have to have it. So I think it's parents need to kind of take care of themselves as well as taking care of their children and trying to keep the boundaries and trying to recognise that their children are still adults. And of course, you know, there's a boy in my book who started having psychotic episodes when he was about 28, completely out of the blue. And of course, it completely changed his relationship with his mother. And she she just said, it's really hard not being the mother, you know, not going into mum mode and sort of suggesting things all the time as he was gradually, well, either getting better or in between episodes, you know, not being sort of on his case all the time. She she found it very difficult, the boundaries. But ultimately, she was extremely supportive. And in the end, you know, he was able to move on. So I think it's it's just a kind of extension. I mean, I think I learned a great deal from talking to those parents about this idea of how to be supportive, genuinely supportive. I think 
one of the the psychiatrists talk, talked about being a dolphin rather, you know, that kind of animal that's sort of guiding your child rather than sort of pushing them or pulling them or, you know, just being a sort of gentle guide on the sidelines. I, I think, you know, that's the most helpful thing you can do. But of course, mental health issues are increasing among that generation. And it's something that, that's of great concern to to parents now. I think I would say two things. One, don't discuss it with your friends because you'll get a lot of unwanted advice and generally of the uh, tough love kind of uh, persuasion. And it's very easy to make those suggestions when it's not your child. So I think you have to be very careful of which of your friends you speak to about it. And the other thing is you need support too. So, you know, I think it's perfectly okay for you to have a, a therapist yourself that is actually supporting you, who is looking after you, because you can't parent if, if you're empty. And a therapist can be a support that makes certain that you're not empty and somewhere that you can actually say all the things you want to say, but you can't say to your child. And it sort of I think it can also stop that sort of good parent, bad parent sort of kind of situation where, you know, your partner's saying, you know, we can't let him walk all over us. And you're saying, well, you know, he has just had a psychotic episode sort of yes. kind of kind of stuff. And you've got that conflict too. So I think you really do have to think about getting support. Yes, absolutely. I, I think it's crucial, but I think it's very difficult Certainly the people, the professionals I spoke to who who dealt with eating disorders said, you know, that's the last thing that parents feel they can do, that they feel, you know, they don't even feel they can, you know, go to an exercise class. You know, they've, they feel they've got to be on it all the time. And I think if your child has mental health issues, you're terror, you know, you're terrified of something going yeah. wrong. So, you, you know, giving yourself permission to do those things is is a really difficult one. Yeah, but, you know, however long you have to be on it, you can have one week off sorry, one hour off a week where you go and speak to your therapist about it. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you are the one that is being taken care of and held and supported rather than the other way around. So you've got some ideas that I think are really helpful. And the first one is a family meeting. So tell me about a family meeting. What are they and when should you have them? Well, I think you should have them when there's a sort of Similar to to what you described earlier, actually, you know, a sort of an old hurt, perhaps, or I mean, there, there's a a woman in my book whose whose daughter was very critical of her. She was very dr critical of an episode that had happened eight years earlier, and it was to do with drinking and driving. And the mother was very, very upset, distraught, and felt the whole family were ganging up against her, and all of this, and and felt that her whole foundation of what she thought family life was like was being undermined. So she first tried to talk to her daughter one-to-one -one, and they, they never really got to the nitty-gritty. It was sort of polite, but <laughs> they didn't. So then the father suggested having a family meeting where everybody was allowed space to speak. Nobody interrupted them for however long, five minutes or however long it was. And they each took it in turn. And at the end, they just had a... A sort of general discussion, I think. So I think it can feel a little bit too formal for some people, but I think it can be very useful. I mean, this is in, a, in an informal way. I'm not talking about, you know, a family meeting in any kind of formal sense. 
but just sort of getting around the table and each being allowed to say your piece, particularly if there is, is any element of sort of sibling rivalry. I think it can be very helpful to air those things. And maybe to have what's I think in Indian ceremonies they call the talking stick, you know, that you can't yes. actually speak unless you're holding the talking stick. And yes, when you finish, you pass it to the next person. So everybody gets a chance. And maybe, you know, it's going in order round of the way you're sitting. So somebody might have to sit with it for a while. And that can sometimes be better than them being able to grab the spoon or whatever it is next. Yeah, definitely. I think it's definitely better to go round the table one by one. Yes, definitely. And another one is organising family rituals. So tell me about that. Well, family ritual sounds rather grandiose, perhaps, but it's really just, you know, anything from just family get togethers, family, you know, birthdays, the occasional barbecue at the weekend, whatever, you know, things that you enjoy doing. Of course, in religious families, there would be more of a, of a set ritual, Friday night dinner or whatever, you know, Sunday going to church and then maybe having like things like that. There will, there will be rituals, but I think it's important that everybody feels the rituals have meaning, that they're not just a waste, you know, oh God, we've got to go along for whatever it is because mum wants us to. I think they have to have meaning. But I think the more informal rituals, you know, they can be really useful in bringing the whole family together. And I've found that my children are much more interested in those kind of things than Perhaps I would think of instig. I perhaps wouldn't think of instigating them, but they instigate them. They want to be together as a family, and I think it's, you know, the the family kind of exists as a kind of abstract concept, but it needs to have a kind of concrete uh, manifestation to kind of keep going, if you like, and to keep alive to all of the different issues and the different ways. You know, people's lives change all the time. They they have a ripple effect and affect each other's lives. But the way siblings relate to each other changes. And so that keeps that alive. So I think it's, it's, it's just really helpful to have, to have dates in the diary, if you like, where you all get together, but not to be too pressurised and precious about it. So if, if one person can't come, cool. You know, don't say, oh, you know, this, this is terrible. You must come, you, mu-, you know. So I drew two conclusions from uh, reading your book, and I think they're both really, really beautiful. The first one is, it's okay to have a mixture of emotions about your children. Yeah, absolutely. That was a real revelation to me, actually. Parents kept saying it to me, and I thought, ah, yes, that's right. And then, then then a family therapist said, you know, this is the thing, you know, you feel really ambivalent towards them. You want to support them, you want to let go, but there's this very powerful pull. You want them to be independent, but you feel anxious, you feel all kinds of, you feel irritated by them. You want them to do things you approve of, but they do things you really disapprove of, and then they criticise, you know, it's all, yeah. So, the bottom line is very simple. I think it's unconditional love. I think it's totally un- unconditional. But then there's all of this other stuff, which is a bit puzzling because you, you, sometimes you just don't know how you feel. About you them. can have more than one emotion at the same time and they can be contradictory. You can have unconditional love and they can drive you up the wall. Yes, you know, exactly. it's, that's perfectly acceptable. Yeah. And I'm sure they will have um, mixed emotions about you too. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, this was a revelation to me that I, about when I wrote my first book, The Empty Nest, somebody said this to me. It was a, re- a revelation that I suddenly thought, oh, great. You know, yes, it's okay to have these mixed feelings. And it's, it's in fact, it's just par for the course. And the second thing is, and this is really, really important, I think I'll get it tattooed across my forehead, closeness and conflict go hand in hand. Tell me about that. Well, I would say being prepared to have conflict is part of closeness, that if you are eggshelling round topics, it's not really allowing the relationship to be close. And so you've got to be prepared to talk about the stuff that really matters and both the child and the parent talk about it in a in a way that isn't full of conflict but that's kind of reasonable i think that's the aim to try and be to have these conversations which are difficult but you're not just sort of rushing out the room in a half i mean i think in fact what happens when you don't have those conversations is you're it's much more likely to build up and then you rush off in a half i think if you are able to talk about the difficult stuff, then I think it, it prevents the sort of blow-ups that, that can be quite destructive and, and sometimes lead to estrangement, which is incredibly sad. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter because I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. It's a newsletter which is a mixture of advice, the thoughts on the meaningful life and the suggestions of additions that you might like to listen to. You can find out everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com. So please do sign up. Details will also be in the show notes. And if you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, you'll find that there is a section where you can participate in the program as well. Make suggestions of topics you'd like to hear or letters that uh, you can write in to me to get the benefits of my guest's wisdom. And this is one that's been sent in through that means. My son, for all the years I've known him, has been a gentle, kind and compassionate person. He's an academic and was considering philosophy at university, but began losing interest in school during lockdown. He's reluctantly halfway through A-levels and not enjoying it. He is, however, heavily into the TV series Peaky Blinders, and his best friend, who I'll call Jack, is obsessed with mixed martial arts, spending hours every day training. Jack has a lot of anger concerning his dad, who's financially well-off, and left his mother to raise Jack in poverty. He has a belief in various QAnon rhetoric and various conspiracy theories, which he persuasively recounts to my son, who is very impressionable and trusts and admires his friend greatly. My son and Jack are now dead set on joining the military, specifically the Royal Marines when they finish school. Peaky Blinders glorifies brutal, merciless male violence and lionises military service. It's a recurrent theme that those who have not been soldiers are cowards, and those encountering PTSD are mentally unhinged, dangerous, and morally inferior to the stiff upper lip protagonist. My son will be 18 in a few months, 
He's currently a full-blown lad, and I cannot stop him from this trap of joining the military. He doesn't have any awareness of his own emotional immaturity. So, Celia, mm-hmm. this is definitely one where one needs to tread carefully. So, parent to parent, any thoughts? Well, yes, I, I think he he's still a kind, gentle, compassionate person, even if he wants to join the military. I think that's the first thing to say. And I think also she's absolutely right. There's nothing she can do to stop him. I think it's extremely painful that your influence wanes in this way. But I think the difficulty is that she's so anti what he wants to do and she's not really engaging with it. You know, she's dismissing it, I think, as as emotional immaturity, whereas in fact that he may have many good reasons beyond Peaky Blinders for wanting to choose this path. And I think it would be good for her to have a conversation with him about it, taking it seriously, listening to what he has to say about why he wants to do it. And, you know, it's not easy often with teenage sons to have good conversations. But I think if you can do something together so that you're not saying, I'm going to have this heavy conversation, but I'm going to, you know, let's go and play ping pong. Let's go and, you know, go to a gallery. Let's go to a movie. Let's go for whatever to open up the conversation so that she takes what he wants to do seriously and thinks of a way forward rather than, and thinking about herself as well, why she's so dismissive of it, why she thinks it's such a terrible idea. Perhaps talk to other parents whose kids are in the similar situation. I mean, I tot- I understand where she's coming from. You know, I think we all say we want our children to be happy, but we want them to be happy in the way that we would be happy. And we have to accept that they, you know, have to work things out for themselves, even though he's... We want them to be happy studying philosophy at university, don't we? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. And... um you know, I think he's in a very safe space to explore these ideas. He's living at home. He's got his mum, you know, sort of supporting him who, there. I think it's quite a, a safe space to explore quite difficult ideas, which in reality he may well not really like. So I suppose the other thing to do is to make sure that he has a good idea about what would be involved in joining the Royal Marines. And that's not you know, I, I would really counsel against her telling him and saying, you don't know what it's like to be in the, but to really, you know, say, oh, well, here, the, here's these websites, you know, just take a look at this, just so that somebody neutral is kind of giving him the information. He's getting information so that he does know what he's letting himself in for if he, if he chooses to do it. I mean, I mean, I'm pulled in two totally different directions. The first mm-hmm. one is, you know, I am a pacifist, and uh, when my nephew, who did actually join the Royal Marines, mm. I mean, I was just completely, utterly aghast. I never said one word against it, but I was still tarred with that brush mm. and got in, yes. and, you know, a huge barrier went up, despite the fact I never even said one single word against it. Mm. So, you know, I couldn't agree more. But yet the other half of me says it's his life and he has to do his path. So um, I'm pulled in two totally different directions. Mm. What interests me is where is her son's father in all of this? Mm. We've got an absent father with Jack, and Mm -hmm. the fact we've heard so much about Jack and his relationship with his father, 
makes me wonder about her son's relationship with his yes. father and obviously the correspondence relationship with this man as well. I don't know if they're still together or what it is, but um, that's is a really important relationship. And to become a man, a man has to leave his mother. And in ancient tribes, they used to come and steal them at night and take them off on some kind of, of uh, test because, mm. uh, you know, mothers would not Mothers don't want to let their sons go. I mean, maybe you can tell me about this, but I think it's probably harder for you to let your sons go than it was to let your daughter go and become an adult. I think in some ways, because it's a very uncertain relationship, I think um, you don't really know how the relationship's going to go because there's a bit of a fear with sons. Certainly I felt this, that will they still want to see me? Now, this may be to do with my own relation, you know, my own family background, I think. But, you know, will they still want to see me? How will the relationship be? I felt an element of that with my daughter as well. But I think what I would also say is that it seems very common that before children leave home, there is conflict. You know, it's almost like they have to, somebody said, you have to trash the nest before you can leave it. You know, you have to really kind of, so it's very, I think it's very common and it's quite scary because they're on the verge of adulthood. They're going to be off away from you and beyond your, you know, beyond your influence. So yeah, I think it, I think it is frightening. As you say, I, I think it is different with sons and daughters. So I hope that was helpful. If you'd like to write in as well and have a letter or a dilemma of yours discussed, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. We could talk about this topic forever, but unfortunately we're beginning to run out of time. So I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? What makes my life meaningful? Well, I would say connecting with other people is the most important thing. With my family, very important. And as that grows and, you know, and changes, I think it, that's, you know, that really keeps you alive in a way. But also meeting new people, the people I come in contact with through work, that's very, you know, it's great to have either when you're interviewing people for a book. I love that connection. That's but also the feedback that you get. I think also I'd have to say kind of as I get older, a sort of spirit, spirituality, I kind of, um, I, I would say I find it most in nature probably, but those moments that you get that make you stop and stand back from your life and kind of give it a kind of, you know, the, the, you, they come out of nowhere. I've just been on a, a canoeing meditation retreat where there were wow. many, um, <laughs> many opportunities to, many spiritual moments, basically, and which came from nature and also kind of those, that quiet time, you know. So that has become more important. It's not definitely religious, although they've sort of got a Christian sort of undertone of kind of trying to live a good life as well, I think. You know, I think that makes life meaningful. Well, that's where we're going to have to end the conversation, unless you are a member of the Meaningful Life family. And if you are, you'll be able to hear the topic of how to keep conflict to a minimum, but still talk about the difficult stuff with your children. And uh, Celia's got four ideas there. And 
I will also throw in my three pennies worth as well, if you'd like to hear that. You can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and get uh, access that way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.